Tyler. I'm Danny. And this is another episode of Fried Squirms, which I'm really excited to do today because this movie is fantastic. Yeah, so one week removed from us doing a month of vampire films. I was going to say, I'm also kind of relieved. Man, I love vampires, like, as I stated over and over and over again for the past month. But it was felt good to change it up. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice way of, like I said, mixing up a little bit. I'm glad we didn't take more than a month to do vampire films because I feel like probably could have got burned out doing that. Yeah, this was great, though, because I've been wanting to watch this movie for quite a while. This was my first time, which, you know, happens quite often on this podcast, looking back on it all. But (laughs) that's okay. There's a lot of horror films that you and I both, we know about, might not have seen them, but it's a good way for us to delve into them, get to talk about them. This week, we're doing one that you brought up. We decided last week at the end of doing Vampires that we kind of wanted to go fucked up. And I'm glad that you wanted to go fucked up, because I was kind of feeling that. I was like, mm, I kind of do want to do a fucked up film. And we both had a couple good ideas, but I don't even remember what my idea was now, because this idea blew mine out of the water. So I'm so glad this week is Henry Portrait, Portrait of a Serial, serial killer. killer, 1986, here in the United States. That's right. I guess get straight into the guts and bolts. Is there anything yeah. we want to... Did we s- mention it's our 34th, right? It's our 34th. Yeah, yeah I think so. Dang. Feeling old. I know, we're getting there. Getting old. Yeah, let's guts and bolts this. Guts and bolts. Guts and bolts. Guts and bolts? Guts and bolts, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this movie, I guess the guts and bolts is kind of easy, because there's not that many people you need to really list off. No, 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 not quite. Especially with our cast of characters. Yeah. So, like I said, I've never seen this before. But I was always attracted to it because of the cast, because we have in the title role. Yeah, as Henry is uh, Michael Rooker. Who's huge. Yeah. This I is, love The Rock. Believe it or not, this is his first major screen appearance. And it's evident why he's had a career since because of this, because he's fantastic. From this point forward, his career has exponentially grown. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess we'll mention it right now. Like, if you just don't know, like, celebrity names, Michael Rooker is Yondu currently in Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. But I actually <laughs> haven't seen 2. I've just seen all the jokes online. But It's understandable. <laughs> I, I feel bad, because usually with all my geek credentials, I can say this and that. But when 2 is in theaters, I had a lot of shit going on. And if I go see a movie, it's a pretty big commitment. And I had too much shit going on at the time. Do you so. want to list any other movies off that he's done? Or would you rather... I mean, that's that? the bit. We'll, we'll get to other shit yeah, later. Because so I Michael fucking Rooker, love yeah, The Rock is him, for right? another specific reason. But, I mean, I was just saying that, like, people know who he is oh, right now should. because of that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, and something else I'll mention real briefly without mentioning a whole bunch of other stuff is people might also be familiar with his work on The Walking Dead. Also just gigantic there. Huge audience for that. Yeah, so there's another reference to more modern work that he's in. The second actor, major actor in this film, is Tom Tolles, who plays Otis. People are probably familiar. We're big Rob Zombie fans. Yeah, I mean, that that's what excited me. I didn't know that he was in this movie. Like, yeah. I, I had never seen this movie before, as I pointed out, and I knew the Rooker was I in it. I believe this is kind of another launching pad for him as well. Like, he mostly did theater work once he got into this, and then his star had grown since that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you showed me a, a screenshot of him in it, I was like, oh, shit, it's fucking Sheriff Wydell. Exactly. So people might be familiar with him as Sheriff Wydell in House of a Thousand Corpses, and I guess flashbacks he's into The Devil's Rejects. Mm-hmm. So those are more familiar works. Although he did pass away, it wasn't very long ago. He had a stroke and had complications from it and unfortunately passed away. So 
you know, like I said, well, this is another film, unfortunately, where we're covering somebody who had a body of work that enters our realm and, and has fortunately passed mm-hmm. since that time. But uh, not moving on from him, but moving on to the next character, played by Tracy Arnold, is Becky. She did a lot of work, too, in stage productions with Tom Tolls. They came from the same theater company. It was oh, okay. called Organic Theater Company Chicago. They did work together, which I'll mention a producer here in a little bit, who also worked with them in the theater. And that's how they got involved with this film. Cool. So that's our three main actors. There's other people involved, but they're literally people who are more behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I believe like three of the victims were played all by the, by the same, same guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, and she's pretty noticeable, too. She's mm-hmm. I guess moving on from our actors, we'll talk about mm. our directors, John McNaughton. Uh, he also helped write this film, and Richard Fire was another writer on board. And that gentleman got on board, Richard Fire, that is, because of one of the producers I was talking about, who I'll mention here in just a little bit. They had done work together in the theater company. He was familiar with them, thought that John and Richard would get along, and they have. They've done all kinds of work since that time. But uh, our cinematographer is Charlie Lieberman. He did some pretty interesting shows. Mostly in the 90s, he did My So-Called Life and Party of Five. Our editor is Elena Magnini. One film I do want to mention that she was involved in, she did a mm-hmm. segment of the movie Four Rooms. Oh, right. Okay, Four and Rooms is great. the segment that she helped edit was Wrong Man. But she also worked on Next Friday and Dexter. <laughs> yeah, nice. music. Oh, uh, and we, Dexter, that's interesting, yeah, actually. Yeah, Dexter okay. series, yeah. She did some really cool work. I've mentioned some other stuff once again in the next section. Music was three gentlemen. Ken Hale, who worked on some other projects with our director, John McNaughton. Once Upon a Time in the Hood. <laughs> I wanted to mention that. I had to start that. I was like, it's too funny. Producer, along with doing the music, is Stephen A. Jones. He helped compose some of the music. He also okay. was a producer on this film. And the other gentleman is Robert McNaughton, which is, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's, he's either a cousin or a brother of our director, John McNaughton. He worked on things like Ed Gein and Cup of Blood afterward. Produced by two brothers. It was Malik B. and Walid B. Ali. These guys were known for doing like documentary work in the mid-80s. Okay. Because of John McNaughton, he did some work with them. They were supposed to get some funding for another work, like I'll mention in the next section, which helped fund this project, so that's how they worked together. They There's were familiar with each other. There's almost documentary-type feel in this movie. Yeah, and they did that for a reason, parts. because he had some work with it. But anyhow, these two brothers own the production company, which I'll mention here in a minute. Lisa Deadmond, Stephen A. Jones, like I said, he did some of the music, and John McNaughton, our director, are the other producers. Special effects team, makeup artist is Burnt Ranchef. Makeup effects is Jeffrey Lyle Siegel, and our technical effects is Lee Ditkowski. Production company Maljack Productions, which later on became MPI, mm-hmm. uh, which is owned or was owned by the two brothers, Malik and Walid okay. Ali, distributed by Grey Cat Films when it came out in 1990 for its theatrical release, limited release in the states. MPI Media Group helped now, release. Sec, sorry, notice, I, I want to point out something real quick there. Notice that difference. There's a big time gap in between. It's an 86 movie. Yeah. What did you just say the release? 90? 1990 is when it got an, an official release in theaters. Very limited release. People were scared of this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason. Well, like I so said, we'll, we'll definitely get into But MPI, like I so said, they released three different versions of this film in 98, 2002, and 2005. They did a DVD and VH releases over the time period. Dark Sky Films, which I own the Blu-ray copy of it, they did uh, the worldwide media release in the 2009 USA Blu-ray release. So that's our distributors. Budget for this film was a little over $100,000. It grossed a little over $600,000 in the theaters, but... Because of rentals and its cult status, it probably rented out for well over a million dollars in returns. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. So this this money made hand over fist in in the long run, even though it took a while. 
It took a while. I'm sure it's Remember still rolling. Remember, you, you had mentioned in a previous episode, you can't really go by its gross. Sometimes you have to look at admissions. Mm-hmm. I want to bring up Spain. They had 94,000 admissions for this film in Spain. Wow. Yeah. So that's a lot of people in Spain who went and seen this film. Right. Huh. That's cool. Release date... Now, check the dates out, because this is this is the interesting thing that you were talking about. It got its initial release at the Chicago International Film Festival in September 24th of 1986. It took all the way until September the 7th, 1990, before it's got its official USA theatrical release. Wow. Right. And I did mention there's a lot of taglines. One that I kept for this, there's like four different ones, is, yeah, I killed my mama. Wow. What were the... Did you write down the other I ones didn't, or did you... Um, I, like, so I'm going to pull those up in a little bit. I'll mention at the end of the next segment. So that way you can have something to reference against it. Right. Yeah, because I'm curious what the other ones were now. Um, yeah. I think one of them was like, uh, he's not Jason. He's not Freddy. He's real. Oh. Huh. That was one that I do remember. Okay. But I like this yeah. one. So that kind of like, leaves yeah, you hanging yeah, a little like bit. That but one, it's interesting. I like more than, than the one you just said. Yeah, so, better, so that's far. what I've got for our 34th film without delving too much into, you know, behind the scenes and all this other stuff, which we'll delve into. Right, and so synopsis. Warnings. Oh, a synopsis, synopsis first. and a warnings. Yes. Synopsis, it's kind of in the title. Portrait of a Serial Killer. Keep that in mind, right? It, it's like a week in the life of this serial killer. Yeah, and the interesting thing is he works with impunity. Inspired by a true story? Not Loosely, based. loosely. I'd say not based, it's inspired. I would agree with that. There are some parallels and there are some some major differences. We'll get into some more of the details on that. But Right, so it, that's a brief synopsis. We should uh, give fair warnings before we get in the next section. Yeah, this movie's raw. It's real. Super raw, gritty. It reminds me of some of the films that we've done with the found footage genre, documentary style. Right, it, it reminded me a lot of that too. And so... When you're talking that raw and that real of a feeling. Not necessarily in that realm, killer. but it does have that feel. Yeah, super raw, like you mm-hmm. say. Some major warnings with this film. It deals with a lot of touchy subjects. There is some, for sure, but there's not much actual violence portrayed on screen. No, not not much, like you said. It's all tame the, compared to what we have done. I think all the worst killings are done off screen, and you only see the aftermath. That's a good way of putting it. But there's also sexual assault, rape, sexual assault, yeah, sexual themes, definitely all uh, those. Extremely frank talk about sexual assault. Well, think about this, right? You did mention. Think about the title, serial killer. So anything that conjures the mind when that term comes, you know, to mind, probably right. Yeah. You know, vicious, sociopathic, involves TNA. Oh yeah, there's there's tits. Forgot about that. Yeah, so there's breasts, there's nudity, like I said, there's sexual connotations throughout, scenes of that. Drug use. Drug use, yes, definitely. Language, of course. They do um, smoke some weed in this movie. Yeah, they do. Guilty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Does that cover it? I hope so, but if not, we'll give you fair warning before we get into yeah, the scene I mean, this that is a pretty, something. This is a pretty raw movie, and there's a reason why people were so reluctant to put it out. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, almost, it, it earned its reputation for the time period, but it also earned a reputation that was not really garnered either. Here's a good way to explain how raw it is. It's one of the three movies that helped bring about the NC-17 rating. You're absolutely correct. So it's a little bit above R, not, not quite, quite X. X. Somewhere in between. It's more of an adult film than anything. But let's talk more in depth about it and get into how it made us squeal. Yeah, so there's our Guts and Bolts notes of our 34th film, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. 
And with that, are you ready to squeal? I'm, I'm squealing already. You Ooh. just can't hear it. I'm squealing on the inside. Well, let's squeal, baby. How does that make you squeal? So we mentioned this is our 34th film. We're talking about Henry still. I'm still talking about Henry, and it's the How Did It Make You Squeal, and I want to say right away, because this is my first experience with it, that the way it made me squeal is that I might have to like rearrange my like favorite horror movies list in my head. I'm like seriously reconsidering and trying to figure out where it fits in, because it's now somewhere in the top for me. I fucking love this film. This movie, the more I learned about it, I had this. I have the same sentiments about it because it's one of those films, like I said, given its time period, given its context, given what it was kind of not really going against, but it was going against a certain type of horror films mm-hmm. at that time period. It's a, it's it's one of those rare films that came along, but it's it sparked this huge following and well deserved. I like how you mentioned what it was going against because. For me, this this film really stands out as something special, both because it was going against the traditional slasher. Uh, I'm sure that's what you were mentioning. Oh, that's, that's exactly what I was alluding to, yeah. Like the Halloween. Yeah, the, you think the Freddy Kruegers, Michael Myers, like you said, all that stuff, you know. And this is the real life. Yeah, this is not... I wouldn't classify this as a slasher film. No. I would think it's more... like the, the director likes to describe it as more of a case study of the mind of a serial killer without there being like investigation style you know like a chase a fantasy like you're this is not about fantasies and going on these killing sprees this is how they do it he wanted to give it like i don't know give the audience something to think about more than just you know being passe about murder and the other thing the other thing that stood out to me though is that both in its historical context at the time it was breaking that mold of the conventional slasher now looking back how however many years 31 years later is that what yeah, we're at now? 31 years because it officially i mean they filmed it in 85 but it didn't really get released until 86 it's official premiere mm-hmm. so yeah so now that many years later it's also kind of a film that was ahead of its time because it essentially deconstructs an entire genre that followed it where you have serial killers as the good guys and it breaks down and almost like if this if this would have come after like silence of the lambs and after dexter as you mentioned earlier then we would say that this was made to make fun of those you could say that'd be like an anti what it essentially sparked and that's that, like I said, the deconstruction, you're empathizing and sympathizing from the serial killer's point of view, as opposed to the victims. Because this even sets up some of those things, like, Rooker, for the most part, as Henry, is kind of a fucking monster in this movie. Oh, he is. But there's still these tiny lines that he won't cross. That's a good way. He, there's a way that you can, like, so you can sympathize. You 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 can still see him as a human but being, not a monster. Yeah. I mean, not a like not like a set of Freddy Krueger or a, a characterization. And and it's these one these killers that were to come later on, where that trait was sort of played up. Dexter, in a big way, where he's only killing other killers. I mean, the the movie Hannibal's, I would say, not so much the show, but uh, I would also lump into that for sure. 
Um, although he didn't have so much of a code as he was just charming. Yeah, and like I said, something that you might be able to relate to or something you could fantasize about, per se, or mm-hmm. perhaps, you know. But this this film really is but super Rooker raw. is none of that. No, he is none of those things. He's not a sweetheart. He's calculating to an extent, and he's very... Like I said, he's a sociopath. He has no remorse for what he does. He just does it because. And, well... Calculating to an extent, but that's what I mean. There's, there's a some, I'd say, there's some degree to where he, you know, he, he plans and stalks. Yeah, one of the things, though. Okay, so we mentioned that this is partially based on real life, right? And inspired by real life, exactly. It's, it's inspired by it, and some of the the portrayals of the things that happened in the film, and some of the are paralleled with the stories from these serial killers. Not that these these characters in the film, you know, played by Rooker and uh, Tolls, they're more lampooning a little bit the real-life Henry Lucas or well, the late Lee Lucas. The more Otis. I read into this, the more I was... Uh, it, it's just sort of intrigued me because I'd just like to relate some of it because it was fucking... Like, yeah. It's some crazy shit that sort of went on. Uh, there was a serial killer by the name of Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, he was sentenced to death. That was eventually commuted... By then... The Bush? Yeah, by then (laughs) governor of Texas, W. Bush. W. He ended up dying in prison from health complications anyway. Exactly. Uh, So did Otis Toole. They were both real people. Now the big difference is... (laughs) The character plays Becky? Oh, that's that's the biggest <laughs> that's huge difference. One. I'll get yeah. to that in a little bit. Okay, I, okay. I think we'll, that we'll needs re- to be we'll its own that. little. I agree because we have that, we have any that has a whole another twist to it. Um, <laughs> Boy, does it! Oh my God, yeah, in a big way. But the big thing about Henry Lee Lucas was, I mean, he was a serial killer. He did time for killing his mom, who he stabbed in the neck, and he definitely killed more people than that. He was convicted of 11. And he confessed to, like, hundreds. He confessed to 600, and at one point that number went up to 3,000. And it was interesting, in a sense, how those numbers got to be the way they, they became to be. Do you know how? Or do you, yeah, do you know so the story behind it? Yeah, so they basically... And that's the this thing. This so, unreal. Wait, I, I want to say first off, I want to start with the small numbers before we start talking about the big numbers. Yeah, no problem. Even of those 11, now they think he might have done two or three of them. They're, they're pretty sure he definitely killed people. Well, yeah, without a doubt. He definitely killed people. So, and then moving up. So, 600 to 3,000. <clears> wow. So, the police department was basically using him to clear cases. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, they that's, were, gi- that's they the, were giving him that something gets down to the nitty gritty. That that yeah, skips all the bullshit. That's when you boil it all the way down. Yeah. Um, he was uh, basically bargaining, confessing things for preferential treatment. Supposedly, he got to like basically walk around the prison, damn near of his own accord. I can imagine, probably like a key. He had in codes a to some of the doors and shit, some of the security doors. So like he was treated like get. a fucking prince. Because he would give up all these details. Now, the thing was, and it's kind of funny, you mentioned parallels in this, and that's why I wanted to start talking about the real life. Throughout the movie, they're all kind of dumb. Yeah. 
real totally. life, they were all of low intelligence. I mean, without sounding too judgmental, all you have to do is take a good look <clears throat> at the real life characters. I mean, not characters, but the real life people. Take a real good look at them. They're not your brightest of citizens. No, no, and I'm... Look, like, I don't really care that I'm, like, dragging this guy's name through the mud because, like, he was a piece of shit. But, yeah. But, it's like, the the fact is all three of them were, like, below average as far as things are concerned upstairs. Yeah, they would be probably considered, you know, white trash, uneducated. However, he supposedly was just a master of reading people. And could change his stories on the fly by reading people's faces. Basically, like how some of these fucking scam artists like do just like social cues. psychic readings and shit. The fucking cold, re- cold reading cues and just picking up on all that shit. As he was nailing things, they ended up giving him access to case files. And he would remember that shit. <laughs> Can you to the point that? where it's impossible to tell... On a lot of these cases that he confessed to, it's impossible to tell exactly what's real and what's not. Because they gave him access to the files mm. to twist through his lies. Because a lot of it was lies. But then, like, there's also stories where he would just be able to miraculously lead people straight to where a body was had been found. Like when brought to old crime scenes of the bodies they had already found. He'd be like, go straight to the place. And it was from files he possibly hadn't seen. Yeah. And so everyone's like, well, like I said, they're pretty sure he did at least two or three. Plus exactly. his mom like, that he had already done time for. Well, yeah. Like he's, certain things you do have to take with a grain of salt. Giving the facts, like I said, the, the police department are giving him preferential treatment in favor for cold case confessions that are totally bogus in most cases i think i think i read they cleared something like almost 300 cases off of him something like that yeah unbelievable but which then of course nobody's looking for the real killer in those cases you know that's something that they have to when i say they law enforcement and detectives and you know all the way up the, the chain of command is they have to do their work very diligently i mean it's not an easy task but i was thinking about I think we were doing the Poughkeepsie tapes, and mm-hmm. whether it was whether it's fact or not, I think the numbers are probably true in most cases. That any given moment, probably here in the states, there might be what upwards to twenty to thirty serial killers, but there might be more. Who knows? This is a pretty big country, pretty big world we live in. Yeah, um. <laughs> it's scary. It's a scary thought. So this. Inspired by real life, this is more based off of basically dude's fantasies. The things he confessed to that he probably didn't actually do, but this is how it would have been if he was doing all this shit. He was he was just wanting to own up to something that was maybe, you know, bigger than himself. Right. The, yeah, this is basically, this is all of his confessions brought to life. Yeah. Like, this is what it would be. It would be this guy just driving around fucking killing seemingly at will just like it doesn't matter he's getting away with it because he's he switches it up often enough that he's not really leaving a discernible trail yeah and even um i don't want to give too much away even though this is a spoiler section you know it's always been that way so 
if you're not you know comfortable with spoilers, it's going to happen. It's going to fly. Spoilers. Yeah. By the way, Rooker's killing people. Spoilers. Spoilers. Serial killer. They do kill people. Hence the name serial killer. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just the fact that he does lend a hand into his method. Like there's a scene with uh, Henry and Otis <laughs> filming bum fights, is what I like to call it. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was weird. I liked that. But scene, he talks but... about modus operandi. Mm-hmm. Taught you some Latin, but you didn't know that. <laughs> the long story short of that is he does give you a little bit of taste of how he likes to mix things up. He's he's aware enough to know that you don't want to leave a trail. You know how insignificant it might be. Change it up, mm-hmm. the method. I'm like mm, you know, like so we're not condoning these things. So don't try to get any bright <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I was about to say the funny thing is like to because we can lighten it up with this is the fact that. It reminds me, George Carlin had a, a had a routine of tips for serial killers. That was basically <laughs> that. Like, it was basically everything that he fucking said. Like, switch it up. Don't do this. Don't do that. Like, yeah. And so I started laughing. Points. Like when I was watching, I was like, like five minutes into it, I was like, as they start going through the that initial like uh, victim montage, I was like, oh, this is fucking George Carlin's bit brought to life. It makes perfect sense <laughs> in in context. Yeah. I'm, I guess that's maybe a fucked up thought to have, but I fucking love me some Carlin, so. I, I, he's easily in my top two all time. I know we're getting off, off trail, but. So, no, because now that we're talking top all time, and I was talking, now I have to rethink where I might put this into into my top slots and shit. And it's going to take quite a bit of thinking. We like don't top ex- slots. Don't, ex- don't expect an answer on this episode. Like, I, I'm going to have to think about no, this No, give for yourself a while. some time. Uh, but Rooker isn't charming in this, but goddamn is this movie quotable. Oh my gosh, it super is. I mean, I've watched it, I think, since we've... We didn't mention it on our last episode, but since you and I had talked about the fact that we're going to do this film together, is I think I've watched it three times solid, right? Hey, how about those bears? <laughs> yeah, fuck the bears. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I don't want to get too involved with that. There's a reason. Just week one is all I have to say about that. <laughs> That's what your season's going to be this year, Chicago. I love the the Cubs, but not the Bears. Sorry. Anyhow, <laughs> sorry, I got personal. No, see that. But that's the thing. Like, there's a cat that we work with that listens to some of our episodes, and I usually keep, try to keep him updated with what we're about to do. And I mention, hey man, hey man, like yeah, we're doing, uh, we're doing Henry this week. And he immediately turns to me and is like, I'd like to kill somebody. Say that again. I'd like to kill somebody. Let's see me and you go for a ride, Otis. Yeah, let me... Just immediately, like, oh my god. And it's throughout this movie, dude. Rooker has some just astounding lines, uh, astounding deliveries. And it's not charming. It's just, within the context of everything that's going on, it just, everything drops... The, the words are just perfect for those situations, especially coming out of his mouth. I'm glad that you mentioned this. It's because it, it pays ode to the writer, writers, everybody involved, including the actors themselves. The, I mean, he fucking nails everything that he does. Tolls does the same thing. Becky does her part. It's an amazing film. It really is. The, I mean, there was Tracy another Arnold one that I, I absolutely had to write down. It's the, the fucking... Uh, I've got several quotes. Yeah. yeah. Nothing's going to happen because nothing happened. I don't know nothing about it, whatever it is. 
he says something too. They talked about. He's like, um, he's like, well, well, it's different. They're sitting on the bed together, right? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, we're gonna paint some vague portraits right now, but they're sitting on the bed together and they're talking about a murder. And he's like, well, this is different. He's like, look, he's like, it's all the same and it's all it's different. Always, yeah. He's like, it's always the same and it's always different. Yeah, and then yeah. he also says something like, um, he says, it's either you or them. You know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, and then he gets. Where are it. you going? Nowhere. You want to come? Want to come? Why? I don't mind if I do. Uh, it, it does have some really memorable quotes. I know we're being super vague about it, but this film, I, I'm really glad that we are doing it. Like I mentioned it to my brother-in-law, and he was really intrigued by it. He read the very first comment on the movie database, a reviewer, and they said that they've seen all kinds of messed up films, but this one stuck with them and gave them nightmares and. It's one that they're disturbed that they watched it and something they'll never get out of their mind. And they said it for them it was like one of the scariest films of all time for them. And he's like, well, that's all I really needed to see, and I'm intrigued by that just alone. I have to throw in that I love the fact that I get to see young Rucker being fucking scary. Yeah, he's, I fucking, he's being, built for the part. We've thrown this out there many a time, being a Kev Smith fanboy. For me, he'll always be Mr. <laughs> yeah. Svening from Mallrats. Fucking chocolate covered pretzel. I mean, you should. Everybody I'm should forever immediate. I'm fucking. I have especially for all of us. I have Michael Rooker ass in my in my brain at all times. <laughs> oh yeah, in the towel. You see his ass <laughs> in Mallrats. Oh, uh, it's perfect, man. That movie. When I look the back, scene I, or his ass. Well, a little bit of both. <laughs> I was you thinking. You ever want to see Merle from fucking Walking Dead's ass? Check watch Mallrats. <laughs> I was thinking, well, what was the first <laughs> film I would have recognized Rooker in? And I was thinking, more than likely, it was probably Eight Men Out, and then maybe Mississippi Burning after that. Oh, yeah. I, that's what I was I was trying to decide. Because I think John I Cusack would, and a whole lot of, of characters are in that movie, Eight Men Out. I recognized him as being Rooker or anything about it. But no, first, not him as Rooker. Just yeah. I knew who the face, the, the person. I don't even think I would have remembered the face, but technically, what I would have first seen him in was Cliffhanger. That would make sense, yeah, given the time period. Because mm-hmm. that was a big film for its time period, too. If I'm not mistaken, he and one other actor in the 80s are the only two people who work with all three action stars of the 80s. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, and Van Damme. And then I probably actually saw him in Bone Collector before I eventually made it back down to Mallrats and shit. I probably would have seen him in JFK as well, because that film, The uh, Oliver Stone... I never did watch JFK. It's long as fuck, but <laughs> I was young, and my uncle and grandmother and my father and all... You know, the adults in my family were intrigued by it, because you know, that was from their generation. But then we also mentioned already Guardians of the Galaxy. He was in Tombstone as well. Yeah, he was in Tombstone. So, I went back and watched that not too long ago, and I was like, fucking Rooker! You get to see Val Kilmer again. And I don't watch Walking Dead. We've mentioned that before. Yeah, not that, not that we're not episodes. fans. It's just that. you know, it's just one of those series we'll get to eventually. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, though, fucking yeah, that's seriously, huge. Disney, Marvel. I mean, everybody went and saw it except for me. I think so. I haven't seen the second one, so you and I are in the same boat on that one. I fucking love that first one, though. It's like modern day Star Wars almost. So I'm all about it. Rooker's the shit. So here's something else I want to mention real quick before we move on from Rooker, real quick, you know, because we're over here. Giving him all lathered up pretty good. All right. I'll, I'll rubbing, throw in one more good. over that fucking rooked head. Yeah. Bald head rook. We're working everything this this way. Anywho, he was also in a big film in the 90s with Nicole Kidman and her then 
on the border of, of being her husband. I think they might have been dating at the time. Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder, man. Yeah. So I remember him from that film specifically as well, because that was a big film in the 90s. Tom Tolls. Tom Tolls, interesting character. I want to mention something, because it kind of threw me off throughout this movie. Now, luckily, it didn't break my concentration too often in this movie because of how much younger he is. But I, I kept looking at him and thinking of Sheriff Wydell, you, which he would play you know, help it. 20 years later. Little, you know, a little bit paunchier, a little bit balder. Yeah. I'd look at him and I'd think of how he looked as Sheriff Wydell, which was always really uncomfortable because when I was in, when I was in college, one of my really good buddies and still a good friend to this day, uh, but we also, we, we started hanging out my first year there. I ended up dropping out my third semester, but that first semester of my second year, uh, we were roommates even. His mom and his step his stepfather would come and visit once once or twice a semester and usually take us out to like Pizza Hut and shit. His stepfather looked like Sheriff Wydell. Creepily like Sheriff Wydell. Damn. And I was watching House of a Thousand Corpses a lot at that time period because I had just found it for $5 at one of the local pawn shops. That's a bargain. And I mean, if nothing else, it was fun to just put in and let it, it has the uh, the animated menu or it's just fucking. Like yeah, it's, it's really cool. Captain Spaulding just going off on you for just minutes on end. I know exactly what you're talking it's about. It's fucking great. So I'd sometimes just, you know, like leave it on in the room just to have something, you know. It's good in background. The background. Yeah, yeah, just have something on in the background. So me and him had both seen it. Just whether he wanted to or not, we had both seen it a shit ton <laughs> of times at that point. And yeah, it was always just sort of creepy because afterwards, like, we'd be walking back up to a room. I'd be like, dude, dude. Sheriff Wydell. Dude, your dad. Dude. Sorry, dude. Dude, your stepdad. You didn't tell he was an actor. It is funny, man, because I, I had something similar happen with my friend Nathan back home. So if Nathan's listening, I'll tell you a, a dad story about your daddy. His dad looks like Dean Malenko. Oh, shit. And a little like Kurt Angle. <laughs> So, yeah, whenever we watch wrestling back in the 90s, like, dude, your dad's a wrestler. <laughs> Not that that's a bad comparison, but, you know. Right. We, and another friend, I doubt that he's listening, but we used to give him shit because his dad looked like Elton John. Wow. So we used to call him Tiny Dancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. That we could get off on a big tangent. That, Benny but, and the Jets, you know, all that good uh, shit. But anywho, Tom Tolls. That, that's, that's all I really had to say about Tom. Well... I do want to mention one thing that I I didn't reckon I mean I recognize him now as the character in the film Night of the Living Dead from 1990. He was the paranoid dad whose daughter got turned, and I think his wife as well. Okay. Right. They they try to shack everybody off inside the house, and they, this guy was like the total anti-hero. He was a dickhead, right? But that was Tom Tolls. The reason I didn't recognize him is he didn't have facial hair in that film, and. Uh, I was like, oh, shit, that is definitely him. He was also in, in uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween of 2007. Another film you might recognize, we were talking about Nick Cage earlier. He was in The Rock and Dr. Doolittle, since we like Eddie Murphy on this show. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, I was going to say the He's other place. Cool shit, I was going to say the other place I recognize Tom Tolls from is he was in Gridlocked. Yeah, he was. <laughs> That's, That's fucking funny. Tupac. So. <laughs> now, some films that Tupac were in were pretty decent, man. Dude, I mean, they're I, not the best, but they're movie. pretty decent. Dude, yeah, Gridlocked is a good movie. And uh, what's his name? 
uh, you thinking is it is it not is it one of the Belushi's? No, 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 no. Greg they Locke, it's Tupac and uh, fucking fucking Tim Roth and Tupac. Gridlocked. We talked about Tim Roth a long time ago in our cell episode. He's but anyway, Tim. <laughs> to- yeah. That's funny. I'm sorry. Tim Towles. That was Tolls. Tim, Tim Tolles is also in it. I always want to say towels, but it's not. It, it looks like it might be, but it tricked us too. I kind of want to go into <laughs> again. Go into the film? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we've been into the film a I little really, bit, but I also want to kind of talk about the big differences because it makes the film even more fucked up. <laughs> it really does. I mean, the film's pretty straightforward. The film's not really straightforward. There's not really a plot to it. No, there's not really a, a big grand backstory other than, than what you get from the stories they they all share together. Yeah, there's no plan. No. There, there's no end that's being worked towards. No, it's just a film about, like you said, a daily life or a week of this serial killer and his his companions, maybe his... What he's doing at the time. Cohorts, yeah. He's just kind of in town, in I mean, the town of Chicago. If you view the ending and what could have possibly happened with the rosiest color glasses, I still think it wouldn't have worked out in the long run. No. If you want to just put on just the rosiest of glasses and sh- say that, like, him not killing the gal in the alley with the dog showed that he could contain himself for Becky, that's not going to keep up. Because he no. also couldn't stand to be touched sexually by her because it started setting him off. It did. He had to have a cool-off period. I mean, we're there jumping way towards the end, but yeah. like we're I, deconstructing I felt like was, this episode yeah. <laughs> just as much as the director. <laughs> I'm just teasing, but like, there's no happy ending in this. And no, this so is not a no rosy film. Plan. He couldn't have ended up in a normal life with her. Like you were saying, it kind of gives that. It, it lends to like, ooh, maybe, and then no, like definitely no. And then, and even then <laughs> you have to, even no. then you have to kind of like put on really fucking you have to be really really fucking optimistic about what might happen at that oh, point oh man in the movie. yeah your chakra levels are like because to me i mean i feel like we're just going to work backwards through this movie That's almost okay, now man. but like almost two scenes before maybe three scenes before that when she tells him that she's leaving it seems like all the cues in that scene are that that's when he decides that he's going to kill her. Yeah, like he was kind of putting things... Like he was putting order. things off. Yeah. And the way that she talked about deciding to leave, that her mind's made up and sometimes you just got to do it. And Henry, what are you... And then she gets on him like, I want you to come with me. Henry, what are you waiting for? It yeah, seemed like exactly. combined with like the music cues and his... There are a lot of hints. He, yeah. he has amazing physical cues throughout this entire movie i know that you you watched some of the making of i i just read things and stuff rooker went method on this definitely did i I should probably give a little backstory i don't want to get too boring and bogged down with it but i think it's it's really interesting look into how they all came about actually you know developing the character like who he was portraying anyhow long story short the director john mcnaughton he had mentioned that during pre-production, before they even began shooting, he was in the Maljack, um, I guess their warehouse or in their studios, anyhow. Mm-hmm. So he went down this long room and he went to this room that just had like copious amounts of horror films on VHS. 
and the guy that was in there, his name was Gus, I want to say like Garrick, something of that nature. Anyhow, he said the guy, you know, he knew like all these arcane and just rare films, and he knew these, you know, horror films inside mm-hmm. and out, essentially. But anyhow, long story short, he was describing what he was kind of working with. He's like, we got low budget, etc. He put in a film, and it wasn't really film, it was a VHS of the 2020 uh, interview, etc. on Henry Lee Lucas. He's like, alright, that's it, right? Okay. So that's how they got the whole idea. They started writing around it. But when they cast Michael Rooker, and it was interesting how they cast him, I'll get into that later, but he said the same thing. He's like, they were trying to give him notes and, you know, things he said. He's like, it really wasn't working for him until he watched that 2020 episode on Henry Lee Lucas. And he's like, all right, that gave me something to work with, like mannerisms and, you know, like trying to portray that character. But at, at the time, his wife was pregnant while they were filming this. And in the making of, he makes mention, Michael Rooker says, you, that's the kind of shit that you can't bring home. You have to leave that at work. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about Rooker when he was in character, because he did that a lot. He was method acting a lot in this. One of the ladies who was in the costume design, they were like riding together to work on set and all that stuff. She said that while they were having conversations in the car, he would start telling her stories that it made her think, is he like being lucas or is this really him right because he would start talking about you know my sister's got a ranch and horses and i'm going out to california so she's like he was totally into it so it pays out that he was in character throughout even his clothes those were his actual clothes oh yeah it wasn't costume (laughs) props it was his clothes and i mean and throughout the movie he it shows like Every time, and so, like I said, in that scene, to me, like, his physicalness and stuff showed that, oh, that's where he's making up his mind, he's going to kill her. But you see things throughout the movie, like, he tenses up, even when he doesn't actually physically do anything, he tenses up every time Otis, we haven't mentioned this part of it yet, makes advances towards his sister. Oh, yes. He's very, very defensive. I mean, and there's a couple times where it's very obvious and he goes very physical with it. But even some of the slight ones, if you're watching Rooker... His mannerisms, yeah. He's reacting. He's every, being triggered. Everything, yeah. It, it pays out to, like I said, their acting abilities. Even this early on, it's super raw. And most of them, like I said, they were just familiar with doing stage productions. Just bit roles in film, if even that. So all the characters are terrible, right? They're all terrible people. Terrible That's what people. I'm, I would say. I mean, the only person. So Becky's that, not bad. Yes, the no, only Becky's person that you could bad, probably right? sympathize with the most is Becky. Just yeah, get she, knowing her yeah, story. She's, she's just the victim of it all. Really, this is just, just caught showing, up in a bad time. This is just showing just like the second, the second generation of an extremely fucked up abuse cycle. Yeah, they, because she even tells a story. All abused as kids. Yeah, literally every one of the characters in this film, Horribly. the main characters, yeah, sexually, physically, mentally, you name it, they ran the gamut when they were kids. Mm-hmm. And this is this is what it's turned them all into, basically. You know, that's uh, <laughs> that's another interesting thing when you think about that. When you mix that cocktail and then you add all three of them together in the same room environment situation. This is what you get. Yeah. And it kind of... So this is where the bleed over to real life kind of happens, too. Because 
basically everything that they say happens to him in the movie it really happened did. to them in real life. The only one that they really didn't go into the backstory of in the movie was Otis. Yeah, they didn't really go too much into his backstory. There is a major and a huge difference. change for Becky. That, exactly, that's what I was about to say. There is a huge difference in terms of her age in the film and in real life. We're, and who well, her character is second. too. Let's yeah, okay, that okay, second, okay. Because that gets even more fucked yeah, up. Yeah, this we're about to get on. some All right, so <laughs> spoiler Otis first. A warning. Yeah. Well, Otis first. Uh the big change for Otis was that he was mostly a drifter and male prostitute. Yeah, he was big time. Uh and was gay. And definitely was in a sexual relationship uh with Lucas for a bit. And was eventually slightly separately, slightly because of, also ended up getting brought to justice and stuff. But by that time, I think they had already parted ways. I'm not sure exactly the real life story of those two. And I mean, I do know some loose, you know, facts about what. Uh, I did. What quite, they were I did quite with. a bit of reading about them, but you know, we're also a bit stoned right now. It happens. <clears throat> Otis Toole, he did end up dying age 49 from cirrhosis in his cell. Um, we really he, should he, talk about his real life. He kind of did a lot of the, some of the same thing that Lucas to an extent. He did confess to more than he actually did, uh, just not to the extent of Lucas. There was a major one that sparked a whole fucking TV show in the 80s, all the way through the 90s. I think maybe even to the present, if I'm not mistaken. And I want to say even started the whole uh, Adam alert, or the... Is it Code Adam or some shit? Oh, Adam Code Walsh. Adam, Adam Walsh. Yeah, that's him. That's the. And we're talking about John Walsh as well, the guy from uh, America's Most Wanted, and he, I think he was responsible, or at least owned up to it, or made a confession about it, something like that. Uh, at least yeah. I know it vaguely, but that's more or less his claim to fame, I suppose. Outside of the fact that he worked with Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he worked with Henry Lee Lucas. They were lovers for a point, basically. Um, Do you want to get into... Was, uh, yeah, right, so the, the other sorry, big change is Becky. So okay. Becky wow. is just what she preferred to be called, not a real name. Not a real name, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Uh, technically for both the characters, though they never mentioned that in the movie. Not in the movie. They don't even give any allusions to any of her backstory outside the fact that she was abused, like we mentioned earlier, by her father... We have to mention that. Oh, okay. So her name was Frida Powell. I just wanted to find her real name real quick. Preferred to be called Becky. Had mild intellectual impairment. Where uh, you could you could reason that in the movie she's definitely the brightest out of all of them. Uh, she's also, oh, I don't know. Twelve? Yeah, twelve in real life. That's so horrible. And <laughs> Lucas definitely abused her from at least ages 12 to 15. Uh, they posed as a couple for some of the places they'd go and shit. And, and he definitely ended up probably killing her. They can't 100% pin that on him, but that's one of the ones that are, they're pretty sure he did. That one's more than highly likely that he did that. But something, I can't remember, something happened. The, the body was... Something fucked up. Uh, I, can't I can't remember, remember either. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't end up doing the, like, 100% confirming, basically. But they're pretty sure, I think, that they got the body and shit. Yeah. I would say, in all fairness, uh, at least on my end of the bargain, I did more research on the actual film than I did on Lucas and 
Otis and uh, Frida Powell. Like I said, I know a little bit, but not really enough to carry my weight. Yeah, Otis, Otis. Uh, yeah, they spell his name a little different. Often, <laughs> I just want to read it. This is basically just straight from the wiki, but as we were saying earlier, he was basically considered to have an IQ of 75 and also had uh, epilepsy. And he had frequent grand mal seizures from that. Oh, that's what I said. They didn't mention his backstory in the film, but in real life, uh, Damn, he was all he was a victim of sexual assault and incest to the hands of many close relatives and acquaintances, or that's what he claimed anyway. But for sure, his mom was abusive and would dress him in cl- girls' clothing and call him uh, Susan. And his father was an alcoholic that abandoned them. Uh, he would claim that his grandmother was a Satanist that exposed him to Satanic practices, including self-mutilation and grave robbing. Sounds like fun. And he claimed that this all happened when he came out as gay to his family, that this all started. Obviously, I think some of that is, like, the Satanic shit, probably a little bit made up. Um, it sounds like everybody's pretty sure about the, the mom abuse. Well, you did mention that he had uh, grandma seizures and... Mm-hmm. A low IQ and uh, epilepsy. Well, and here's the other thing. He, uh, throughout his childhood, he frequently ran away from home and slept in abandoned houses and was a serial arsonist from a young age and was sexually aroused by fire. Fire. Yep. No, I was going to say with that little cocktail at an early age that he was handed out, it's no wonder. It, I would even bargain, be willing to bet a little bit, that he suffered also from probably uh, paranoid delusions, maybe schizophrenia. Yeah, who knows? I would wager that. But yeah, so that's that was like Otis's backstory. Pretty fucked up. <laughs> Upstanding citizen. Like I said, Henry's basically everything he says in the movie happened to him. Yeah, so all those things that his mother did to him that he says she did to him, that happened. Including yeah. my tagline. Yeah, I killed my mama. He killed his mom. That was a weird scene. I mean, not that it was weird. It was just the weird that how it all how open she suddenly was. Yeah, she was real blunt about it. Oh my god! But then even at the end, it was like three minutes after Otis tells her what happened. Even at the end of that, though, is another one of those fucking quotable lines with the "didn't get along with your daddy, huh?" (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck? And she doesn't care though. But no wonder. Like after after all the shit. I mean, and she had just gotten away from being with another An dude. Abusive relationship. Abusive. Yeah. Husband, apparently. Who's also on trial for murder. Yeah. He's on a million dollar bail. Mm-hmm. And unless he wins the lottery. Yeah, off the characters for a second. Uh, I mean, especially the beginning of this movie is fucking beautiful. You don't see much of the action at all. You just start coming in on these scenes of the aftermath of what Henry leaves in his wake and just the R.A. just everything still dead bodies with the camera just panning across and showing you everything that happened while while you have just amazing sound work going behind it. Uh, it's watched cool with my headphones that, yeah. on and it was just incredible experience. You want to hear some, some cool little side nuggets about those guys? Uh-huh. Is the three gentlemen that are responsible for the sound in this film... They, when they were cutting this film and laying down the tracks, they were doing that at a Christian facility, right? They paid, I think they said $3,500 to use their studios, and 
one of the guys who happened to see them piece it together mm-hmm. wasn't too happy with their content, right? And th- it might have been Robert Naughton, McNaughton, who was like, um, yeah, I don't know if, if that guy prayed for us that night or not. <laughs> he's like, but long story short, the guy said the next time, if we ever decide to use those studios, he's like, bring something in that's a little bit more reputable. <laughs> But that was kind of funny that they decided to, you know, use the soundboards and editing mm-hmm. the the score in. But the score itself, the score creepy. is great, amazing. They uh, use public domain huge... noises a lot in this film too, mind oh, you. Yeah, they do. There's an interesting story about that because there's a gentleman in this film, a heavier set guy, we'll, we'll delve into, who was a master apparently at finding public domain videos. Oh, okay. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But they were using public domain sounds. They say anything they could find to put in that film, they would use. Like the screams, the well, sound and, and effects. And it's great because it would sort of build, it would halfway build this scene in your head, but not quite. And it's just vaguely painting a scenario. And you, you just see the aftermath. The ap- exactly. The aftermath is what you actually see. And then the soundtrack itself is great. And they, they have some great music cues for usually what sets Henry off. But beyond that, it... It really dictates a lot of the mood throughout the movie. I've been noticing, because lately I've been getting baby boners for listening to soundtracks. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of getting more into that side of film, too. But uh, I thought about this and how some of the films, whether it be John Carpenter, they use certain cues, too, in the film with the music. Like, there's a scene where they're driving together. When I say they, it's Henry and Becky. They're in the driving off, you know, it's later on in the film. But he's like, you know, when we turn on the radio, it's like, all right, whatever. They talk about loving each other. Mm-hmm. But when he turns on the radio, it's like, my biggest mistake was loving you. Yeah. And then there's another song I think it's playing, and it's like Psycho. I think they're all in the kitchen dancing around, and they got the camcorder. But the song that's playing, you hear the guy saying, Psycho! Oh, yeah, and it's all... Oh. Yeah, and it's perfect, because it's no it's no coincidence that they're using these that for that scene. It's building up something. It's giving you cues, yeah. So I, was, uh, I was just thinking again how this kind of, before it was even really a thing, it kind of plays with like the the serial killer is a hero thing, Dexter, Hannibal, that. One of the things that usually comes up in those is like the serial killer versus worst serial killer. Um, and actually, you could argue that uh, Devil's Rejects is that with um, Whitell's brother. Yeah, he would definitely versus play like the, the whole clan. Rejects, I suppose, yeah. Because and I mean that that's definitely where there's no good guys. You're you're rooting for w- one set of bad guys or the other. Whoever you deem is worse. You know what I mean? Well, and, that kind of lends to like the greater or lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. And that's what this movie devolves into. Because the only one in the beginning <laughs> that's bad. Well, the only one in the beginning that's fucking balls out killer is Henry. Oh yeah, there's no mistake in what he is all about in this film. From but, like so from the onset. But by the end, Otis has become unhinged. Not just killing with with impunity, but one thing I don't mean to interrupt you is mm-hmm. I do want to play devil's advocate a little bit because this film in the very beginning, not that it it makes any difference. But if you're not familiar with this film and say you watch the first few minutes, it's when he's in the diner and he's paying for his bill and asking the waitress for some smokes, whatever. 
he says something like, "Hey, you got a cute smile." And she's like, "Oh, mm-hmm. thanks." So they're they're playing with you a little bit, like they want you to feel comfortable, like, "Oh, he's, that was you know charming," but then almost immediately that that gets flushed down the fucking toilet. And all because you start you seeing is dead bodies. Yeah, what you see at the very beginning, you start seeing throughout until they all meet each other mm-hmm. in the kitchen in their apartment. And I mean, and don't get me wrong, like from the beginning, Otis is a pig. Oh, but no by doubt. the end of the movie, he's unhinged. He's taking and doing whatever the fuck he wants, whenever and he wants. And it was wants. spearheaded all by Henry. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely all spearheaded by Henry. At least in the film. Um, and so by the end, it's like, oh shit, like, which shithead am I going to fucking root for? Yeah, do you feel sympathetic for the fact that Otis kind of got pulled in because of his, when I say his, Henry's persona, maybe? Or he was taking advantage of some of his insecurities? Like, you know, Henry was maybe like, okay, you know, he was like, this, it's either you or them. You know what I mean? And so he's kind of giving him fodder to like, just, just make, just do the killings. If you, if you want to do it, do it. This is how you do it. He Uh, was egging him. Yeah, he really was. It all started really with the hooker scene. You know, I the funny thing was because I hadn't seen this before when I was first going through, and there's that, that big opening with Becky opening up. I thought it was going to go the other way, and she was going to be the one that was going to be tutored, I guess, by Henry. I and can I, see that, yeah. And at that point, like, in that second, I was like, okay, so she's going to be tutored by Henry. They're going to have to keep Otis alive for some reason. But the ending in this movie is going to be Henry having to kill her because she couldn't hold herself back from killing Otis because he's such a pig. Gotcha. That's what I thought it was going to be. I can see that. I mean, really, there's nothing in this film that would, you know, lend credence otherwise in the very beginning, you know, Mm -hmm. first impressions. Which I still think is a good story. As yeah, well, but I mean, it, it, I'm a little bit definitely. Doable. I'm a little bit biased, I yeah. guess. But I'm wrong with that, man. Like, I know we've been kind of, like, I said, kind of pussyfooting around certain scenes because there's a lot of really raw shit, like you said in this film. But um, there's, like, you were mentioning that Lucas and uh, Otis in real life they had a sexual relationship. In the film, you don't really see that, but but you almost get like. They're they're broing out for a bit. They are broing out. There are there is a just a little bit, a little bit, especially on the bed. Because Otis, I did, I did want to mention this about his shirt in that scene when they go out to get beer, mm. right? Yeah, he wears a slick ass dress shirt, right? Playboy, but he's mm-hmm. got his you know his false fucked up teeth, right? And they're hitting the town. They pick up them hookers, but then after all that stuff that happens inside the car and. You know, Killing snapping hookers. of the neck. You know, and that happens. Yeah, but they have that scene where he's like, let's go get something to eat. He's just like, no big deal. They go back, and they're having that conversation on the bed. And that's when they have that little resolution, like, okay, this is what it is. He went to go get a beer, Henry, that is. He came back, he's like, this last one. And he hands it to them. You see, like, a little... There's a little chemistry, like there's there's allusions to homoeroticism a little bit, not much, but a little bit. But here's what I wanted to mention. Long story short, I, I say that shit a lot, but anyhow, in the outtakes, Michael Rookie said he's like, I'm glad they cut this out of the film. You see, because there was a continuation on that bed scene where they start having heavy petting and a makeout sesh. Oh shit! That they cut out of the film. Oh, okay. So if our listeners 
are familiar, you'll, on the, especially on the Blu-ray copy, you'll get to see that. But if you're not, go check it out. If you want to <laughs> go check it you, out, if you want to see, Rook, if you want to, you know, romanticize that relationship, there are some outtakes of that. Uh, yeah, you can go do that. Yeah, I will say there's a lot of things in this film where they they had to improvise. They didn't have permits in certain scenes. Mm-hmm. There's even a scene where you see Becky come up a flight of stairs when she's going job searching, okay. and you see these two guys arguing on the steps as she's walking up from the subway. Yeah, those guys were really arguing. Like those aren't extras. They, they just... when they were filming that scene, they asked those guys if they could move away while they're shot, and they no no. <laughs> So they're, fuck it, we're going to film it anyway. So there's a lot of scenes where they were shooting out of necessity because they didn't have enough money to go outside of Chicago. They were all based in Chicago for the most part. Looker is from Alabama, but he did a lot of stage work in Chicago. So they worked with what they had, and it's amazing some of the shots they pull off, man. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that really stood out there. There's only one more thing that I really want to mention because yeah. we, we didn't really go through this movie in order. We didn't really talk about much of their killings well, a lot oh, So either. I guess, yeah, there's their killings. They go on a killing spree a little bit. They go on a little bit of a killing spree, and that's sort of them broing out. And it's yeah, kind of we weird because the in the beginning, it's it's kind of funny. Like, they're, they're getting on each other's cases, and, like, it's kind of fucked up because they're killing people. But it's like, oh, yeah. Like, when he busts up the TV, he's like, well, I went overboard. Guess you did. <laughs> yeah. And then you have I the scene I with the television guy. That's what I wanted to the talk fence. about. That guy, right? All his scenes, literally, his dialogue was improvised. All of oh, it. Oh, wow. All of it. And he was the guy I was talking he about. He does a great job of being a fucking asshole then. Remember I was talking about the director had a guy that was a real buff on public domain videos okay that's the gentleman that's him. that's him so they like said when the director and like i said i know i'm kind of reverting back to stories here but when the director first got involved with the um, ali brothers he was doing those documentaries he did a gangster documentary and that guy uh, i think his last name is i want to say his name is ray atherton if i'm not mistaken okay. the heavyset guy the black market electronics dealer when um plug it in otis yeah i'm plugging it man <laughs> plugging it in i'm plugging him too but he like I said because he was a master of, of finding public domain videos they did a documentary together called it's like uh dealers of death it was like two episodes about gangsters you know during i guess the 20s 30s on up and then because of that they had a little bit of success they got some funding their next project was supposed to be about wrestlers in chicago from like the 50s 60s maybe 40 50 60s um but the person who owned the films that would have gave them you know the archives for that the archive footage when the brothers the ollie brothers submitted their offer to the guy the guy doubled down as like oh no i meant i needed this much money mm-hmm. and they're like look we already have enough funding from that uh gangster documentary like we want to do a horror film they kind of wanted a slasher film they wanted something that teens could go see in the theaters they wanted to okay. you know have a little cash cow but because they found that footage of the 2020 episode of henry lee lucas that changed the whole landscape they knew they were on a limited budget the director didn't really want to make a campy film but alex and i know i'm kind of jumping off board here but um that like so that heavyset guy man that's that was he had a lot to do with why they actually got into this shit and along with the guy in this the um like so the the warehouse guy gus mm-hmm. two different people um but there his work was tremendous in actually spearheading this whole project 
It's kind of interesting. But he gets whacked pretty good because he gets lippy. Well, it's great because the, the director, McNaughton, he really takes you on a, on a huge roller coaster ride throughout that entire sequence because everything leading up to that pretty much has you rooting for these motherfuckers. It was and really Everything a after yeah. that just brings you back down. And then you have like the weird scene with Otis getting creepy with the, the video camera. Yeah. And then the home invasion. Yeah, that's probably where a lot of people, if they make it through this film, they get to that scene. That's and probably that the one that pushes you over edge. Off. Yeah. For uh, most, I won't say all. Some attempted rape there and killing of a kid and shit. Yeah, it's a home invasion of a family that Henry is recording. That was actually Michael Rooker recording that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that the director of photography, Lieberman, was behind him just kind of directing him. Oh, okay. And he says when the kid came in, he laid down the camera, but then the the direct, uh, cinematographer laid it down on, like, um, I think he said some sandbags to give it that angle. So you still get that kind of found oh, footage, okay. raw yeah. home invasion style. So, yeah. But the lady who played... Uh, the the wife who got molested essentially going fuck good god she said that she was a little naive because i think if i'm not mistaken i think she and the guy were really a couple and they were just like they found somewhere in chicago happy to be on this project oh okay she was from kansas initially and so that was like her first major project she worked on oh wow so here's something I want to talk about the scene they said they had to take several cuts because it was so emotionally intensive you know what mm-hmm. i can imagine but Tolls felt like he was being too rough with her during those scenes, and he like was, he was really adamant about her getting checked out by the professional, like you know, medical professionals, because he felt he might have tweaked her neck and shit because they were getting rough. And she's like, no, she's because there was like rumors going around that, you know, that like this stuff was like almost snuff exploitation oh, right. style, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever rumors there are, she debunked them. Okay. Yeah. She's like, I was just a naive young girl from Kansas who got on this project. She's like, even when the scene's like after she does get her neck snapped and it looks like Otis is going to perform some necrophilia on her, Henry steps in. That wasn't really initially supposed to end right there. Like, they were supposed to carry it out, but I think the uh, Richard Fire and McNaughton thought better of it. Okay. <laughs> They're like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't put that in there. So they, they, they didn't follow through. Otherwise... We would have saw a whole different sequence play yeah. out. Oh wow, that would have been that have been nuts. Well, that's the thing though; it keeps it does keep going down from there though. Oh, downward spiral. Then you you know you see Otis just kind of, sort of continuing to be more forward and more creepy and shit, and that leads to the big part of this movie. You want to talk about the, the drug deal sort of, first? Hmm. We're we talking about the drug deals or. Oh, well, I, I mean, like I, I, mean yeah, we can talk about that. Like, I, I guess I was skipping over that some because yeah. I, I was thinking about how that was just part of him getting more forward and creepy. But well, that also lends the hand to his homoeroticism, right? Um, yeah. So, drug deal. Um, so, when was the last time that you went to go pay for weed and uh, dude started uh, filling you up? A little self-service gas station. Yeah, shit. Guy drops off the weed at your local high school apparently and hands you a joint and then rubs your thigh. Yeah. Pop them in the nose, and that's where it spawns him to going out on that shooting spree to begin with. He's got with. a good size back there. Yeah, he pulled out. He was laughing. He was like, so you got the goods? He's like, what, are you, what goods? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's really creepy through it. I do, he does a great job. You have to and like give I him said, it just gets that. worse and worse as it goes on, too. But, but that he never really... has good social graces in it. Though. No. Like I say, anytime you have any kind of 
sympathy maybe for these characters. They find some way to dash it not oh, too long man. after. Oh, man, they stab you so hard in the gut. Like I said, even in that scene with the... They just want to get a TV and they, you know, want to find out about the camcorder. And then they, all they want is a TV and the guy gets fucking lippy with them. Mm-hmm. And so when you feel a little sympathy because you're like, hey, man, they just want a TV and this guy doesn't have and a And it's kind off. of a funny scene overall. Yeah. The whole TV on the head, plug it in. Oh, yeah, plug yeah. it in, Otis. Um, but they go mayhem on that guy at the beginning, especially Rooker. Mm-hmm. Stab City. So the the movie, though, really, what it boils down to at the end and why why it was part of the reason for the NC-17. <laughs> yeah. And in some way saved the movie because they said they were, they were willing to make cuts, but the ratings board said that the, no matter what cuts you make, we're never going to accept this. Something I learned, too, and McNaughton ta- talked a lot about it, he said he didn't want to really argue a lot with the, the MPAA. He said they're not a censorship. It's because if they start doing that, telling you what to cut, and they, they become censors and you can sue them. Mm-hmm. He says all they can tell you is that there are certain scenes that they're not comfortable with. And that maybe if you go back and edit some things out, maybe we can work with you and see what happens. But in this film, they're like, no matter what cuts you make, it's not going to get a rated R version. There's yeah. no this. You, it's like we're not filming a whole other fucking film. So in some ways, it, it, it saved this movie because it truly it totally is did. a gem all the way through. It's however, this, it even built its reputation because of that as well. Because you had said that this was one of the the three films that sparked the whole NC seventeen thing to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned earlier that Rooker, the sexual advances of Becky sort of start setting him off, and he's not ready to do that. No, one thing I was thinking too is because. Otis teases her about her dancing, mm-hmm. you know. He even talks about her being the mm-hmm. queen of clubs. I think that maybe have triggered him too, like the fact that his mom was a whore, and maybe he sees her a little bit as a whore. Right. Well, I was gonna say part of the, I think part of the reason that he fucks up his mom's story like three times is that in some way most of his victims are his mom. I would totally agree with that. Sexual. There was a hypersexualization of all his victims. And in all of this, it reminded me a lot, actually, of Ichi the Killer. Yeah. Who also had an extremely abusive past that tied his sexual feelings to feelings of murderous rage. That's an amazing film. We'll eventually get to that, no doubt. We talked about Mike, mm-hmm. where there's no eluding him. And th- this eluding really him. reminded me of that, too, uh, of that's how a, Ichi would point, get yeah. set off. So he has to excuse himself, and while he does... Otis rapes Becky. Yeah, so the whole while, there, there is a real quick scene, because he likes to he does skip off. He goes to that um, little convenience store, that bodega. Mm-hmm. The guy who's running that shop, the clerk, Yeah. that is Walid uh, Ali. So he's one of the producers, one of the guys oh. responsible for MPI. How about so, those bears? Yeah, how about those bears? Fuck the bears. But you're right. Henry makes his way back home. He has a little... Dialogue with the woman, with her dog, the Heinz 57 dog, Dolores. Mm-hmm. But he does. He thinks better. Maybe he's like, fuck, it's not worth my time. He goes back to the apartment. Yeah, Otis. Walks in on it happening. Otis is, yeah, fucking. He's strangling her. And actually what happened is Tracy Arnold, she talked about this, the lady who played Becky. She's like, I didn't realize that when we were filming that, that I shouldn't be holding my neck while he's choking me out because I actually passed out. <laughs> So that scene, I don't know if it's the real take where she passes out, but mm. there it may be because when Henry comes in and kicks Otis off of her, 
she just kind of slumps over. She just slumps forward. So maybe that was a real take. I don't know. They had a long, a couple of sequences where there were long takes in this film, mm-hmm. especially that um, that scene on that little, I guess, underpass, the shooting scene. That was a long take. They fight because, as we mentioned before, Rook isn't having any of this incest shit, which harkens back to his. Yeah, that's a trigger. His past. Um. And really, I mean, I forgot to bring it up. He has a marvelous bit during that Otis being creepy with a camcorder sequence because he starts almost getting like childlike breaking down when he's being ordered, you know, ordered to do things on camera and shit. And it's he does. Uh, You're right. When he hands the camera off to Otis, Otis gets very like voyeuristic with the camera, like do it, touch or feel her. Yeah, because it's weird. Otis almost gets the upper hand. Yeah. Becky gets the eye. Oh, man. Becky, and that whole confusion, she comes out of it. Um, Otis does smash Henry with that whiskey bottle. Fucks him up. He's going to go. He's about to go to Shanktown on him. Yeah. Right? Becky gets that. It's like a comb with a pointed end, like maybe a pick comb. Mm hmm. Yeah, and she stabs his eye. In the worst effects in the movie. Well, you know why they use that? They hmm. said they spent $700 on that head. They were going to use the fucking head. Rap, hey, can't blame him. It's not bad. No, it's, it's not, not the bad. Worst. But I've I mean, worse. when you see the stab, you know it's a you know a prop. Yeah, you know it's a prop. I hope you would know that's a prop. Don't be that squeamish, guys. Uh, I'll be a little judgy on that. <laughs> I mean, from there though, it just it, it can. <sighs> that's where it just continues to get depressing. There from there, because Rook there just are, takes control. Of that'll the situation. let you know. I, I think for for the breakdown of it, like you almost like well, there's a little illusions like may, maybe there'll be a happy end, but. No, no, I mean, at, at that point... No happy endings. He takes At that point, Becky's just too... Oh, too, she's Too much shock. of a problem, really. No, she is... He can't... She's a potential She's too much threat. of a liability. Yeah, well, that too. That's that's kind of what I mean, but... Uh, yeah. So, and so he just methodically, at that point, lays it out, gets... Helps... Oh. Has her help get rid of Otis. You know what? One thing I did want to say about that dialogue mm-hmm. they have during that scene is... He's like trying to calm her down because he just killed her brother. But she starts getting hysterical on him and he starts screaming at her, like, Let me think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me, th-, you know. And then when he does think, he takes Otis in the bathroom and dismembers him. That's when you get the head and the, <laughs> the garbage bags. But uh, yeah, you're right. They go out, they have suitcases, possibly, apparently, with Otis. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. He he gets her to help, and at this point, like I said, his mind's made up. You kind of yeah, know, he already know knows what's what coming. Series of events are coming for him. She, she you should it. know what's coming. It, you there, there there's hints here and there where you could be optimistic. Yeah, and this could be just them Maybe. going off for a life on the lamb. Bonnie and Clyde, but he kills her that night. They go to a fucking motel, and yeah, everything's so. leading up to it. Like it's. If you're familiar with the poster, maybe the cover art for the DVD and Blu-ray, there's that scene where you see him looking at himself. Henry, that is. Michael Rooker looking in the mirror at himself. That scene's in the motel toward the end of the movie. I was about to say, that's the, that's that's the image I've most seen from scene. this movie. It's, I think it's more of that iconic scene when you associate it with Henry. Mm-hmm. You see him just looking at himself in the mirror. She, she says that she's playing the guitar on the bed. She's like, I used to play when I was younger, and you can hear her strum. I was like, No, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> Bullshit. Yeah, I was about. I, yeah, fuck. Thank you. Thank you. No, you didn't. <laughs> the hell was that? I'm a little out of practice. It's like, yeah, for what? <laughs> Someone has played it like two times. <laughs> but no, nah, I mean, 
Outside of that, yeah, once he exits that motel room, he shaves, he leaves, and is like, where's Becky? And oh. he unloads, uh, he he unloads, unloads another suitcase on, on the side of, the of like a freeway or, I don't know, just a highway. Who knows? But yeah, and I like, I like how the camera, he gets into the car, Henry, drives off. You don't see him leaving. I mean, you hear him leaving, you see him leaving a little bit. They don't follow the car. They zoom in on that suitcase and they start panning out. And then, boom, you end with the music again. You end with the, you know, the end credits. The and moose like, is loose. God damn. It's as much as, I, you know, we know these are films, how they're filmed, and, you know, the actors do their jobs. It's still a raw film, man. It doesn't leave you with a happy feeling. It's a great film, though. I highly recommend it. He gets away, and they make a terrible sequel that nobody's ever heard of. Here's something about the sequel, though. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I probably, I'll probably see it somewhere down the road next decade. But the guy who directed the sequel, he had a huge hand. And it, this Henry being released because the brothers Walid and Malik, or Malik, when they received the final edited version, they weren't pleased. They weren't really happy with the fact that they filmed a film like this. They wanted a slasher film, like so for teens to go see in the theater. So we're like, all right, well, we can't get a rating. We're not going to put it out on VHS, you know, for rentals. We're just going to shelve it. And so, like, so the guy who did the sequel, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. I'll look it up here in a second. He was like, look, he, he was in the studios. He knew about the film. He and McNaughton approached, you know, Waleed, or, or it might have been Waleed. He said Waleed was more of the dreamer. Waleed passed away in like 2003. Mm-hmm. They got another screening at uh, like the Chicago Film Festival in, I think, 89. And they got some really good reviews, mostly from critics, not necessarily from the people at the audience. Mm-hmm. They got mixed reviews there. But Siskel and Ebert stood up for this film. Um, people from the Village Voice, I can't remember the exact um, people author of like that article the they wrote about voices. it. Yeah, the there was somebody from the Chicago Tribune who gave it a, you know, a really good rating because they were like, look... This is a raw film. This is not your campy, you know, teen slasher, your boogeyman. Mm-hmm. He's like, we didn't want you to fantasize about these murders. Like, I'll give you some of their, um, I guess, references or points of reference to go against. The director, they said, when they screened it at one of the festivals, some guy approached him. He's like, you can't make films like this. He's like, well, we just did. Right? He's like, but he was arguing. He's like, well, let me ask you a question. He was asking that movie guy. He's like... Did you see that latest like Schwarzenegger film, sci-fi, probably Total Recall or something like that, or it could have been Terminator or what have you? But he's like, how many deaths were in that? You know, like hundreds of deaths. You see people get mowed down. He's like, well, that's entertainment. He's like, well, then there's something wrong with you. He's like, there's nothing wrong with the film. Yeah. He's like, you can't glamorize all these massive deaths because it's it's a, you know, it is a fictionalization of it, and then discredit one that is it's a movie. But it's told more from, like I said, from the serial killer's point of view than mm-hmm. a hero's point of view. So um, it is a super interesting take on the whole horror genre, really, at that time period. Yeah, uh, I agree. But I, like I said, I was talking about the sequel. Yeah, that guy had a, a big hand at getting this film actually uh, released. They had a big success, like I said, at the Chicago Film Festival. Uh, they got most notably, I think they said it was at the Telluride Film Festival mm-hmm. in 89. And then, you know, they were kind of vindicated by Siskel and Ebert, and the rest is kind of history. I think in the sequel that Henry... I know a little bit about it. ...is played 
by Eddie Caputo from Child's Play. Really? That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, the guy that played Eddie Caputo, obviously, yeah. since that's the character's name. But I'm almost positive t- about yeah. that. Dang, that's almost weird. positive. It might have been. I had to look it up, but I guess what kind of what I want to talk about a little bit too, because we're already past the film, is how this whole film, like, it kind of got developed in the first place. I talked about the funding behind it and the fact that one of the brothers really wanted a horror film, but how all these people came together was a really cool story. Um, you know, because McNaughton worked with the, the brothers for a long time and he did those documentaries and he was pretty successful with that. They got that guy Stephen Jones on. He was a producer. And he said that McNaughton gave him a bunch of notes. He said, like, something that you would see in uh, film school. It was written down on index cards, kind of. He's like, all right, you need a writer for this. So that's when they got Richard Fire on board, who was a part of that organic Dick theater. Fire. Dick Fire. Fire Dick. He was, like I said, he was a local guy in the, the theater scene. He said that when they got Richard Fire on board that he wanted to keep, like, he wanted the actors to be aware of their space and time and, you know, like mm-hmm. their physical movements and things like that. So he, that's why you see a lot of these close scenes with these characters together and, like I said, some of their triggers, their mannerisms. Right, okay. It, so that's Richard Fire worked with Tom Tolles and Tracy Arnold in the Organic Theater Company in Chicago. So that's how they got on board. Michael Rooker is a different story altogether. One of the effects guys, um, I think I said his name is Jeffrey Siegel. They were auditioning at Richard Fire's. Um, it was either Richard Fire or Stephen uh, Jones's apartment, you know, for casting because they got funding like twenty five thousand dollars initially to, to do the fucking project. So they went through some people. One guy was an older guy. They said like, we have to write him more of like a father figure to Becky if we're going to pull this off. And then another guy was like more of a theater person. He was a handsome guy, would have pulled it off, but he thought he was too important mm-hmm. for this film. He said, Jeffrey Siegel, because he worked on some theater productions with Michael Rooker, talked to Michael Rooker. He's like, hey, man, you know, there's, they haven't really found the person they're looking for. You should audition. Michael Rooker at the time was working as a janitor, and the clothes you see him wear in the film he fucking literally was wearing that out the audition. He's like, these are my work clothes. I walked in with the white socks and the jacket. And mm-hmm. He's like, I went in, he auditioned for it. And he said, well, the director said he opened the door and he saw Rooker and then he heard his southern kind of raspy, yeah, low kind of voice. Originally. He's like, that's our guy. He said, it, as soon as Rooker left, he called his line production manager. He's like, we got to get him on board. And at the time, Rooker was offered a theater um like part in something like what Steppenwolf, um, I can't remember the exact title, but it was like it's kind of like a maybe like an opera of sorts, like a rock opera. Okay. Um, but he turned it down and instead worked on this, and then from that point forward, he got in like I said, Eight Men Out, Mississippi Burning. Even before this film got its theatrical release, he already put like three films in the bag that oh, wow. his star was already soaring. But because of this film. Right, I, and I mean, it's evident throughout. Like I said, yeah. he's fantastic in this entire movie. You talked so. about one one of the ladies in this film. She played three different victims. So because of their small budget, a lot of the people that we see, the not necessarily all the extras, but like some of the victims, the uh, couple, like the older couple in that liquor store at the beginning of the mm-hmm. film after the diner scene, that was like one of the director's, I think one of his best friends or one of the producer's best friends' parents who owned that <laughs> That right. place, it, like so, they were using all these people 
you know, well, because they had the connections to. that they had to, to keep things as yeah, and as so cheap it, as it just possible, showed like basically. they worked with what they had. Is we even though this film might not necessarily feel like a low budget, it, it is a low budget film by standards. The other thing I know, well, it's probably, it doesn't probably the most. it doesn't feel like a low budget film. And the other thing, and I mean this in a good way, yeah, is it feels longer than it is. It's only an hour and twenty two. It's an hour and twenty two minutes, and it feels like a two hour movie. It but really not does in a bad way. No, no, no. Because when it, I was taking my notes, like, like they oh, put that, that much into it, and there's oh, that much. They pack a wall up in this film. It's. Everything like is you get your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner with this meal. That's right. Um, I don't. I don't really have much else to say though. No, I, I, really said, I just think if if people are interested in like said learning a little bit about how this film came, came together, do yourself a favor. You know, find a copy of this film. It's definitely worth looking into. The score is magnificent. We did talk about that. I'm a huge lover of writing mm-hmm. of the composition of music because it really did trigger a lot of scenes in this film. The score like is said, brilliant. Most of the time, I watch this out in my living room. I've got a pretty good sound bar and shit out there. And, yeah. And so, I mean, the sound's always great and stuff. But this one, I ended up watching it in here on my computer and I used my headphones. And the sound throughout was just terrific. I there were so many... I'm sorry. It, it adds so much depth to so much of the scenes. Just the different, like, for the victims, like when they would do the... The basically the uh, the struggle in the background when they'd wash over the scenes to the actual score itself with just the kind of synthy, almost John Carpentry at times. Yeah, there's notes of that. Uh, not sure. quite though, but really with really intense music cues for Henry's emotions and how much it was really tied to him. Yeah, it's it's just as a film. I think as all of these films that we've done, this one is all around. It's a solid fucking film. Yeah. It's hard to really, I mean, outside of like the fact that it is a low budget, the acting is a little, it's not great. The pacing is a little slow at times, but uh, still a solid film. Even 30 years later, 30 plus years later at this point, solid fucking film. Why do you think we're covering it? And Michael Rooker. Yeah, so if you like Rooker, if you like chocolate-covered pretzels, man, there you go. Chocolate-covered pretzels. That's right, dude. Mr. We talked Spending about himself. Walking Dead, Guardians of the Galaxy. Goddamn. Check it out God if you like Rob Walker. Zombie. You know, we've stroked him off enough. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Just brilliant performances. And like I said, you got to give credit too. Uh, the director went on to, to direct Wild Things. <laughs> Wild Things, yeah. And he did another one. It was like Sea of Love with Al Pacino and some oh, other people. Oh, probably. I just think about Wild Things, though. Yeah, but mm. that's. Yeah, it's called. Um, let's say he did The Harvest, Mad Dog and Glory, Wild Things, yeah. The Borrower was another. He said it was like an alien based horror film. He said. It, that film had another struggle with the ratings boards mm-hmm. and stuff like that but oh uh, the, the funny story I wanted to mention this is really cool they said at one of the film festivals this is being the cast and the crew so they mainly sat in the back row and they were screening it and you know half the audience left and they said they got a thrill out of it because it gave them a visceral experience that's not the funny part he said at one particular he said, it might have been during the home invasion sequence, mm-hmm. this woman got out, disgusted, was like running toward the door, and Michael Rooker was running a little late for that screening, so he said he was rushing up the stairs into the theater as this woman was coming out of the theater, and he said she bumped, like they literally bumped into each other, and she looked at him and recognized who he was, and he said she like let out this scream, nah. <laughs> you know, and he's like, 
He's like, man, that was that was great. He's like, I loved every bit of that. He's like, but what happened was she turned around and ran back into the theater. Oh no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, because of his portrayal of that character. Yeah, I mean, Henry's unsettling through and through, especially yeah. because, like I said, it's in the title. So from the moment you see him on screen, you're like, you already know he's a killer. I would hope there's so. no guessing about it. You know, even when you when I hear the word portrait, that scene where he's in the the bathroom and he sees the reflection of himself, himself that could be you know my my take on the, the portrait mm-hmm. of a serial killer looking in on himself encapsulating himself but um i, I just i'm glad we did it because it's not Me the too. most fucked up film we've done it still is raw it's still fucked up um and it's still something to talk about all these years later agreed um with that being said, though, we have some exciting things coming up. <laughs> I know, right? I'm not sure. We haven't nailed down all the details no, yet, so there's not we much are, we can necessarily say. We're tweaking them. Uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get those ironed out. Uh, but we have some ex- super exciting things coming up. For sure, at some point coming up, we're going to be doing the Belco experiment, which you yeah. got more Rooker there. Yes, we did talk about that. McGinley, some others. That's going to be uh, fun. At some point, that for sure is going to be coming up in some form. Uh, but we also have other plans that are probably coming into fruition even sooner. Yeah, so we're going to work out... Or as a, part of, technically, I guess. But. Yeah, good point. <clears throat> we're going to work out some of the details, iron out those things, see what happens. So please, please, please keep listening to us because it is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be totally worth it because we've got some like, sort of really cool projects excited, lined up. Um, to keep following us. We're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on Tuned In. Yeah, we're on all those platforms. You can... Fried Squirms on Facebook, at Fried Squirms on Twitter. We're on Instagram as Fried Squirms Podcast. At Fried Squirms Podcast. So email us. Email us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Um, and we have a website, www.friedsquirms.com. Yeah, check us out there, too. You know, there, We have various avenues you can We take. try to make it easy for you, um, yeah. and we'll, we'll check out other ways to do that. Also. Continue to give us feedback. We did talk about this earlier. I almost forgot. Oh, shit. I almost forgot. Yeah, no. Uh, the, these. I remember um, the name. I don't remember the name of the group, right? I remember. Oh, no, no. So, well, this cat gave us an awesome review on Facebook, but he also liked a bunch of our shit on SoundCloud. He's part of a band. Yeah, we're talking uh, about the gentleman's name is Marquand Schramm, which Schramm is an interesting last name for reasons we'll talk about in the future. Oh, it I deals with horror. Oh, okay. I promise you that. Well, I was just going to say, like, uh, we noticed he was part of, I believe, part of this fucking band, Sparkle 2. Uh, was it? Sparkle tooth with ding sound. I think. I think Am I right I think about right. that? I, I I should just look. If this it's off up, the top of your head, be. that's pretty damn good. But we dug the shits. So we wanted to say it. Like we listened to the the three songs that they yeah. have up on SoundCloud I told, yesterday when we were hanging out. I was so. telling you, I felt like it had the, that indie vibe, but it also had um, you know some really good rock elements, some angular rock elements. Oh, reminded me of Modest Mouse a little sparkle bit. Sparkle effect on tooth with ding sound. I was really, I was close. Sparkle effect on tooth with ding sound. We fucking, we listened to the three tracks that are yeah. posted. Fucking really dug them. We just sort of sat back and listened to all three. Yeah. I came over yesterday and we checked them out and it was good. Good tunes. Uh, we wanted to say, hey, thank you. Down in Houston. Harris down County. In Houston. Down in Houston. That's another uh, shout out to my sister. <laughs> and to those guys down there. Yeah, definitely thank you for bumping us a little and bit. And we're going to keep listening too, as long as yeah, we keep like putting so, out shit. So. so keep that in mind that, you know, we do like to respond back to feedback. So whether it's, like I said, whether it's positive, negative, let us know how we're doing. Give us some kind of feedback. We'll communicate back with you. 
But I mean, that's 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 no, I'm done. Yeah, I'm, I'm toasted. But no, like I'm glad we decided to go a little fucked up. But I'm feeling on this a bit one. toasty too. It's getting yeah. warm in here. Well, we're feeling toasty. We're about to get roasty. That's right. Um, so keep so keep listening keep to our showsty. Yeah, I like it. Nah. Remember, our next one's the 35th. What do we have in store? We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. Stay um, tuned, like you said. Stay tuned. We'll try to keep and, you all in the know as we figure it out. Um, you know our... I guess... Oh, Fry Squirm's out. <laughs> out!